Welcome to California Groundbreakers, a place that sets trends, starts movements, and shakes up how things are done around the world. We're inviting interesting people doing innovative things to sit down and talk with us about how they're asking and answering the big questions facing all Californians. Our goal is to inspire change across the state, one conversation at a time. Tonight, we're talking with two of Sacramento's most well-known groundbreakers, literally, who are building up new hotspots in the city. Catherine Bardis and Bay Miri were born into real estate development families, and they're carrying on the tradition. They like to go into under-the-radar parts of town, revitalize them, and put innovative spins on how mixed-use housing, retail, and office space should go together, and how it should fit into a community. They're addressing head-on the challenges of affordable housing, homelessness, gentrification, and California's infamous red tape process for getting things built. And while they run their own separate business, they just got married. As Sacramento grows up and upward, Bardis and Miri are two of the people responsible for what that growth will look like. We're down in the basement of Bruce Dollar's Taproom in downtown Sacramento for some good beers and conversation with Bardis and Miri as they tell us about their current projects and how they think Sacramento should look in the future. Hi everyone, welcome to California Groundbreakers. I'm Vanessa Richardson and I'm the director of uh, this organization. We're focusing on innovators doing groundbreaking things around the state of California. And we do it usually with a beer or a glass of wine or a cocktail in our hand to make it more fun and, and uh, a little more festive. And so tonight we are holding our first event of 2019. And it's the first of our Groundbreakers Q&A interviews in which we're talking with some of Sacramento's mightiest movers and shakers. Um, people who are bringing changes in all, in all types of industries and areas um, and really putting California's capital on the map in bold font. So here we have two of Sacramento's wealth, most well-known groundbreakers, literally, Catherine Bardis and Bay Miri. And they're two builders who were pretty prominent, I'd say, in the transformation of Sacramento with their projects like the R Street Corridor, the Mill at Broadway, and here where we're, we are now for this event, the 700K block. And it seems one thing these projects have in common, at least when I look at them, is um, going to maybe under, underlooked or, or overlooked or under the radar parts of town and revitalizing them, either from the ground up or maybe in, in buildings that have already been stood, standing and adding local vendors into those places who make Sacramento proud, like Shady Lady, Roost Dollar, where we're here. Um, so it's innovative spins on how mixed use, quote unquote, housing and retail should go together and how it should fit into community. That also means addressing the head-on challenges of some of California's most pressing issues, that's the lack of affordable housing, uh, gentrification, uh, the reality of homelessness, red tape, legality. So it's a whole bunch of stuff that uh, these two have to deal with, I guess, on a regular basis. So another thing they have in common is they recently got married. When, when did you get married? I'm going to ask Catherine first. Let's see. When did we get married? September 2017. So it's been a year and a half. Okay, so uh, a little spin that we're going to do on this Q&A is after the Q&A about their work, we're going to do a kind of a newlywed game kind of spin. I asked Bay questions about Catherine. Catherine asked questions. I asked for questions about Bay. They don't know the answers, 
But like the newlywed game, we're gonna see how much they know about each other, who knows more. And hopefully it doesn't cause any fights or divorce. I had to but think about our wedding date, so it might. <laughs> and, then, and then we also have, I think many of you hopefully saw on, on Facebook and social media, we do have some um, generous sponsors on the 700K block, Roostaller, Tiger Next Door, and Bylerman, which has opened up uh, down the street, gave us gift cards. So for those of you who registered on Eventbrite before four o'clock, we have a, all your names in here. And uh, we're going to draw. So please stay, uh, stay, stick around to be present for that. So uh, you already heard Catherine's voice on the podcast, but um, I'm going to have you two introduce yourselves just so we can hear and know who you each are. And obviously your name and um, your organization that you run, current role there. And I always like to know a little personal note, kick that off the bat with a personal note. Um, this time around is what is the most interesting building that you admire, that it's not yours in Sacramento? Um, a shack, a mansion, uh, retail, housing, just what's the most interesting building that you really admire, just really inspires you around town, or the county? So let's start with Catherine. Okay, hi everyone, my name is Catherine bardis Miri. I work for Bardis Homes. We are a local um, home builder in the Sacramento area. My cousin and business par partner, Rachel, as well as some members of our team are here tonight. So everybody say hi to Rachel and Bree and Tara up there. <laughs> Thank you for coming. Um, a little bit about me. I don't know where to start, but um, both Rachel and I are very passionate and Bay, of course, are very passionate about building housing in um, the lovely city that I was born in, Bay grew up in, and um, trying to deliver all types of housing for all types of people. And my favorite building, I have many, but of the moment would be the Crocker Art Museum because I love how it merges the old museum with the new modern aesthetic of the new wing. And I thought they did a phenomenal job of curating what was the history of Sacramento to bringing a new aesthetic to the museum. So I appreciate it and love the Crocker. And they're adding another building, aren't they? They're planning, they're gonna break ground on that. Are you, either of you involved in that in any way? Oh, you are. Um, they are Catherine. undergoing a new park, Crocker Park, and a parking structure to go along with that. And it, plans are still in the works. They're hoping to g break ground late next year. Um, I am involved with the Crocker. I think it's a great organization for Sacramento, and I hope that they can really bring this expansion on and make it even bigger. Next up. All right. Um, hi, everybody. My name is Bay Murray, and I'm with... Uh, Miri Development now. I have my own firm, which is uh, still kind of uh, weird to say, but it's a, a challenging uh, new chapter in my life that I started a couple months ago. But um, before that, for about 15 years, I was with D&S Development, DNS, and that was a company that was started by uh, my father, David Miri, and uh, Steve Labosci, who's basically like my second dad and uh, a big mentor in my life. Um, so I was with them for 15 years before that, working on various projects around town. And um, my biggest passions are to try to do a um, wide array of housing types, I would say, um, is one uh, really important thing to me. And uh, by that, I mean both from an affordability standpoint to do low income, moderate income, market rate, 
um, to also do for rent and for sale. Um, and then in addition to housing, uh, another big passion of mine is uh, retail, restaurant, uh, creative office type of uh, uses. And so um, I think that part of my passion comes from uh, when I was a kid because before uh, my dad got into development, um, we were pretty heavy, uh, heavily involved in the restaurant world. And my dad started the first uh, Subway Sandwich uh, franchise actually in Northern California, believe it or not, like 35 years ago. <laughs> um, Where at? Uh, it was off of um, Arden and Bell, and then there was another one off of Fruit Ridge. So we very much grew up uh, immigrant mentality. Um, parents came over here with basically nothing. Dad was a taxi driver, security guard at night, taking units at two um, different schools. Uh, mom was in school and taking care of me and my sister. So um, very much grew up around the restaurant, local mom and pop specifically type restaurants. And so um, a big passion of mine is to bring more and more of um, very Sacramento feeling concepts um, to our city. And as far as um, favorite buildings, that's a really hard one <laughs> for me. Just, just pick one that you uh, saw recently that you remembered. So I would say, um, for a variety of reasons, probably the wall building, um, the warehouse artist lofts at uh, 1100 R Street, um, 1104 R Street, um, which uh, a close friend and a business partner of mine, um, who actually was a business partner on this project, the 700 block, um, it was a project that he was the lead on along with his father. So Cyrus Yusefi was the father and Ali Yusefi was the son. And um, Ali unfortunately passed away um, last year on March 10th from uh, stomach cancer. Um, so for a variety of reasons, what he did there, it's an artist housing project. For those of you who haven't been there, it's phenomenal. Um, there's a public market with fish face pokey bar and all kinds of um, concepts in there. Not only is it an aesthetically cool building, but the culture and the impact that it's had on our city has been really unique and phenomenal. And so that would that would be the project that I would say. And it's fitting because tomorrow is First Friday, right? That's a big uh, art event, and I think there's a lot going on at the wall usually for First Friday. That's right. So for yeah. those of you who haven't been or want to go uh, tomorrow. Um, Great, thank you very much. So, Ali, you, uh, not Ali, I'm sorry, Bay, you led into the families, because um, you both uh, grew up in families that work in construction and real estate development. So I was curious in terms of, you know, how that played a role in how you grew up in your childhood. Did it shape you, like, yes, this is something I wanna do, or, you know what, I wanna get out of this uh, and do something different, but somehow I got sucked in. So I'm just curious, you know, how, how your childhood was shaped and your, your adulthood by growing up in a family in real estate development, because that's pretty distinct kind of family, right? Who wants to start? All right, Catherine. So I tried pretty hard to stay away from real estate as much as I could. My family, um, I do come from a family of developers, cousins, my father, um, basically everybody in, on the BARDA side of the family. But we were hit extremely hard in the last downturn. I happened to be at college at the moment in Los Angeles. So for me, it was uh, very devastating to see my family go through such success. And then my dad, at 
the tail end of his career then um, really be hit hard at such a time in his life. And so to me, I wanted to pursue a career that seemed to be more stable. And um, so I went to law school, and I don't know if being a lawyer is more stable than being a developer, but you know, <laughs> you set up on set off on one path and um, fiercely try and pursue it. So moved to Sacramento to be closer to my family. Went to McGeorge, worked for a law firm, started hanging out with my family more and more. Got a little bit involved in the business. Um, started working with Rachel. My dad um, had not given us, but showed us some lots in the pocket area um, to develop. And Rachel and I started building them while I simultaneously was working. And I was like, this home building stuff is a lot more fun. And I happened to be a little bit better at it than lawyering. And so it turned into a natural progression of um, kind of following in my family's footsteps, beside, but despite trying to stay away at, from it as much as possible. And every day I'm so thankful for um, the foundation that they have given myself and the, re the rest of our family, Rachel as well. And, um, you know, we're fortunate to have the guidance of our family, but also the leeway to explore different building types the way we want to do it. So it's been interesting, to say the least. And I, I have to ask, because it seemed like there was a maybe at least a short-term career path you could have taken, equestrian uh, horse horse jumping. Because I think I read in the business journal that you could have been a contender for the Olympic team for for show jumping. So I'm just curious about that. Does that help you in any way as a home builder, uh, your equestrian skills? <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, yes, because with the horses, it's such a, I mean, one day you could be at the top of the sport winning. I'll never forget, um, on a Saturday, I had won this big event. There were probably over 100 people in it, professionals, amateurs. It was called the Grand Prix, and you're competing against everyone. It's the biggest event of the show, and I had won it. And it was a huge deal. And the very next day, you know, you're kind of on cloud nine. I get on my other horse. I'm competing thrown off, split open my mouth, go to the hospital. How and, old were you at this point? Uh, I think I was 20, 21. Uh, so it teaches you to have humility no matter what happens and to also get up and keep fighting. And that get up and keep fighting mentality you definitely need to have in the development business. So that was eons ago, and I did have a horse life at one point, but it's definitely in the past. Horses to houses. Bay, what about you? Um, yeah, so for me, I, I definitely always knew that I wanted to get into um, real estate development. I um, When I was in college, I was uh, in the Bay Area, and I would come home, and I remember I would spend time with my dad or Steve, and they would take me around, and I just quickly fell in love with what they did. And I think the reason why was... Um, Back then, they were predominantly doing um, suburban B-class kind of shopping center type places, not the places where you go and you see a Starbucks or a Jamba Juice or a Best Buy, but um, the type of suburban shopping centers that are just very eclectic. There might be 20 or 30 tenants in there from 20 or 30 different backgrounds. Some are immigrants, some you know were raised here, whatever. Um, and I would just see my dad 
sit down and talk to the guy that owned the small mechanic shop and then talk to the baker from like Eastern Europe and then talk to, you know, whoever else next. And I just, for me, um, the exciting part about being in real estate development is if you're, especially if you're active and have boots on the ground, is you are really exposed, introduced um, to a very just wide array of all walks of life, all types of demographics, all different types of people coming from different backgrounds. And I just, I love the fact that um, when you're in real estate in any one day, you may talk to someone that wants to open a gym and then talk to a banker and then talk to, you know, a student that's interested in getting into real estate or, and then an artist or whatever it is. So I, I always knew I wanted to get into it. Um, and it just grew from there. And I think, for me, um, I kind of I just fell into really loving the specifically the urban infill component of it because it was all those things that I liked to the extreme. So if you like human collisions, if you like going to Bylerine Cellars and coming out and seeing your friend that's opening a tech office, you know, across the street of in Lima Park, who's here by the way, that's Ollie sitting right there. Um, you know, it's it's uh, it's a it feeds you with a lot of energy and it's very addicting and it's exciting and you, it's tangible and you feel like you're changing something every day, even though you get frustrated at times because it's taking forever for the PG&E meter to show up or the drywall to get done or whatever it is. At the end of the day, you look back and you see places like this that J.E. Payno and his team have done at Roostaller, for example, and you're basically building community centers. You're bringing boxes and people to come and sit in these boxes and come together and forces them um, to interact and to have events like this and just that's that's the cool part of it for me it's not um, you know the dollars and cents of it is not going to change our lives you know if you have x amount more in your bank account are you really is your life going to really be that much more different no i mean we're going to all get up and still pretty much be the same you know what we are and so um, that's the part of it that i think is is really exciting I just before I forget, I want to ask how you two met. Did you meet on the job? Because I don't know, is this a small community or random? Is there a good story briefly? Because I know we're gonna ask you more about yourselves. But I'm just curious how you two met. Sounds like it's a good story. No, it's actually really boring. <laughs> we met on a blind date. Um, Bay actually picked me up, and I was talking to someone on the side of the street when he picked me up. Well, actually, he was talking to them. I walked out, started talking to them too. Had no idea who Bay was. I was waiting for this strange man to pick me up on a date, and then we realized <laughs> that we were gonna hang out with each other. And it was kind of this funny, awkward moment. And the person that I was talking to ended up being my neighbor at the time, who was Bay's dad's business partner. So it was just meant to be. <laughs> yeah, it's a small world. It sounds like. Uh, I wanted to ask about. Um, a, each of you, a project that you're working on or maybe worked on, like one project that's really significant to you in some way in terms of it uh, really inspired you to uh, to do something new or you wanted to really um, make your mark uh, and, 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 and boost Sacramento up along with it. Something significant about this project that, uh, I don't know, past, present, or future, that really to you was a, a, 
a professional milestone in some way and maybe a milestone for, for us in Sacramento. That might be too grandiose, but I'm just, because I want to ask you about all your projects. I know there's a whole bunch, but in terms of time, if there's one significant one that just really, you know it's always going to stand out for whatever reason in your, in your career. Who would like to start? Oh, okay, well, let's just start with Catherine each time. Well, okay, first of all, Bay and I have never spoken on a panel like this together before, so it's a little awkward for me, so sorry if I fumble through it. I mean, we spend a lot of time together, but this is a unique setting, so it's kind of, it's kind of strange. You're, you're doing good. You're doing good I so far. I look over, and I'm like, oh, hello. <laughs> My husband's right there. So. Now, the goal is to make sure there's no fighting at the end of the night. Okay, you both okay. go to bed happy with each other, so. No, so, you know, it's that's a difficult question because every project brings forth its own set of challenges that make it a special milestone. Um, but for me, the mill at Broadway will always have a very special place in my heart because when Rachel and I first wanted to pursue it, of course we went to my dad and other older sage old people in the industry to ask their opinion on it. Are we on the right track? Is this worth pursuing? And, and, and we should mention where the mill at Broadway is yes. for those who don't know. So it is off of between 3rd Street and 5th Street on Broadway. There's a great restaurant called Jamie's. It's across from Broadway, right? There. So if you put Jamie's in your navigation and then turn left on 5th, you, you will won't find, find it. a sign. No. <laughs> we try and be mysterious. Um, but so the mill has a special place in my heart because when we first started and wanted to look at it, everybody told us we were crazy, don't do it, it's not going to work. And um, both Rachel and I are a little defiant. So when you tell us that something's not going to work, of course we're going to want to do it. So I don't know if it was planned that way or if we just proved them wrong. But um, so because of that, the mill has a special place and because it was our first large project as a company together. And being able to pull, pull off the first couple phases and see this old warehouse logging factory that really was underutilized that nobody knew existed turn into a thriving community that's continuing to grow and have new community members every day at this point is a really special thing to turn something that was really nothing and see it as a place where over 300 people live, we're going to have a park, a marketplace, and seeing the li liveliness and the heart and soul when you walk around is really special. And I, I do have to ask, I think um, Art Street, because we had Art Hotel just, well, just down the block, and then Art Street was within the mill, and that building's going to be renovated or turned into something else. Um, okay, and I know about the, the market, I was gonna ask about that, because it seems like there's some big names. There's uh, Andrea Lepore from Hot Italian, right, and Sunny Mayuba who opened up Tiger, they're involved. I hear there's a ping pong table, or tables. So it sounds like, what is that? I'm just curious, Do you, are there plans for this that community space at the mill to be opening up or breaking ground? Yeah, so um, Sunny Mayuba and Dave Pringle, the same group behind Red Rabbit, Tiger, Solomons, all upstairs, um, they actually purchased this old marketplace building 
within the Millet Broadway, and they're in for their permit right now to start development on the building. And we're, I mean, that's just probably one of the most exciting things to actually see happen. And we are fully confident that they're going to be able to pull it off because of their track record of success and such unique concepts. Right now, they are talking about a ping pong bar and a mini indoor mini golf bar as well. So it sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun. You can, you'll definitely find me there. <laughs> and Bay, what about your project, the one that stands out for whatever reason? Yeah, so um, for me, it's two, <laughs> but they're very connected to each other. Um, back in uh, 2008, I uh, stumbled on this opportunity, and it was the, uh, the old historic Perfection Bakery building at 14th and R. And it was this two-story uh, red brick building. It didn't have a sidewalk in front of it. There was heroin needles on the on the ground in front of it. Um, it was in pretty bad shape. And uh, my dad and Steve were a little reluctant. Again, we were doing a lot more suburban, um, for the most part, shopping center facelifts, stuff like that um, before then. And I was just blown away by this building. I thought it could be... Um, a really cool mixed-use opportunity where we could have some exciting local businesses on the ground floor, and I, I can't emphasize the local enough, um, and then do some for sale, which there wasn't much for sale product at the time, and there still really isn't in the grid um, up above. And so we, uh, you know, we went forward. Um, we rehabbed this building. It had great bones. And along the way, um, some really exciting mini stories happened. Um, I remember going to visit friends that were at Davis at the time. And they said, oh, we got to take you to this really cool place. It's called Burgers and Brew. I'm like, Burgers and Brew, what's that? And so we go there, and I was blown away. I find out it's the same people that own Crepeville in Midtown. Meet them, and that led to them signing on to bring this you know, fast casual concept um, to 14th and R. Fast forward a few months, and we had a little ad in the paper, um, you know, restaurant space for lease, and we would get calls every now and then from people, a tiny little ad. And um, Ed and Janelle from Magpie randomly called us one day from that ad. And at the time, they were sharing um, a catering kitchen off of uh, Rio Linda with um, Del Paso, sorry, off Del Paso with three other caterers. And they wanted to open their own catering place restaurant. And so that led eventually to Magpie coming on board as one of our tenants at 14th and R. And then finally, um, some guys that I went to high school with, Alex Oregoni and Garrett and Jason, they were working with Randy Perigary for like 12, 15 years. And they finally had saved money, sold a house, and they wanted to open their own um, prohibition style, prohibition era um, restaurant and bar. And they wanted to call it the Shady Lady. And so we signed a lease with them and we helped them build it out and kept their cost down as much as we could. And it was just, it was really exciting the way it all came together because up above we had 12 lofts. This was right when the recession hit. Um, we were able to sell the 12 lofts. I remember my mom would have open houses there every day. I would bring the A-frame signs out and put them on 15th Street and 16th Street so that all the traffic that's coming in and out of town would see our little A-frame signs. And when we sold those 12 condos. The bank didn't think we were going to do it. We won a, a bet with the bank, <laughs> and they ended up taking us to a big dinner one night, celebrating that we did it. And 
that really opened my eyes. I remember I would drive by the site when the businesses were open and I would see all these people like on the patio walking around. And that was kind of the beginning of our street. And it was just, it really opened my eyes and that kind of led, and I won't go too much into it right now, but it led to, to this project and partnering with a great partner in CFY development. Um, and us doing this project together, which was kind of, it was kind of 14th and R on steroids. It was even more local businesses along with an even wider array of housing, um, had historic rehab, had new construction. And so it's, it's a tie for sure for me between those two projects. I know, I feel like uh, I don't even go down our street corridor on Friday or Saturday. It's just so packed, which is great, right? It's really, it seems like it's, it's such a destination now. Um, I wanted to ask, actually, I had a friend who wanted me to ask this question, probably particularly to you, Catherine, and, and maybe you, Bay, as well, in terms of the housing. Um, she was, and this, this will tie into the, the a more general question, but she said, we were looking, my husband and I were looking at uh, uh, places to live, townhomes, apartments, we went to the mill. And we went, looked, at, looked at a few floor, floor plans. We noticed there was no dining room. There was no dining room in either of these. This is what she said. She said, I'm 40, am I, and I guess I'm a millennial, but maybe is it millennials don't want to eat at their, at a table anymore that's counter or they just like you do away with the dining room because you got to keep costs down. But to her it was significant. There was no dining room and you'd think that was uh, just a standard. So this ties into the question, I guess, of like in terms of your customer these days and the focus on, there's so much now focus on millennials and now Gen Z, right, and what they want and, and where they're living and, and uh, what they can afford. So in terms of who you're building for, particularly housing and also retail, um, who do you see coming into Sacramento these days, old and new? Is, it, is the focus on millennial and Gen Z younger? Um, does it really differ that much from building for older generations, Gen X boomers? Um, is the dining room now such a big deal? So this is really for both of you, but I wanted to start with you, Catherine, because she really wanted me to ask you this. No, I definitely appreciate that. Um, so to tackle the dining room question first, I would say it's impossible to be a builder for everyone. And so what's important to us is to curate the environment for the demographic that we're going after. And with the mill at Broadway, at least for the first two phases and what we've built to date, it's mainly the millennial demographic, whether we like it or not. I mean, that's what we built the first two phases for, that's who we marketed towards. And it's not so much that the dining room is going away per se, but we were limited on space with how the homes laid out and the size of each unit. And so when looking at kind of the non-negotiables to us, it was more important to have maybe a larger island to where everyone always gravitates towards the kitchen, no matter what. I mean, we live in a house with a dining room now and it's very strange to us but um, everyone still gravitates towards the kitchen they want to hang out at the island they want a snack while someone's cooking and hanging out and so we thought that the kitchen could be the main gathering space and the island could serve as the eating area there is room for a small dining table maybe a four top six top round table but there isn't a formal dining space and that was intentionally designed just when looking at the non-negotiables, that's what had to go. 
but in our larger homes, maybe geared towards someone in their 40s or or over that, we do have the more formal dining space, although it is open. So we do like to have that kind of openness throughout any home that we build. What was the second question? I got so fixated think, on the dining room. <laughs> I think, well, yeah, that ties into who you're building for. And uh, is there a, a difference between uh, generations and particularly who's moving into Sacramento or moving around Sacramento, um, younger maybe, more than older? Um, Okay. And I guess with you, Bay, as well, with the Harden or other um, housing, and maybe even just in terms of uh, vendors that you decide to um, put in there, do you have a certain customer base or target market that you think this is who I should be building for, for work, retail, living? Or does it matter? It, it matters a lot. And I think, um, I think the goal, I think the responsibility that developers have is to try to build as much housing stock as they can if they're in that world for as much of the demographic as they can capture. And they, to me, you shouldn't just solely focus on one specific type of housing, but Sacramento needs all different kinds of housing, right? And so as much as you can try to do for sale, for rent, uh, studios, with maybe very little to no storage space or closets or you know dining rooms, um, all the way up to two, three bedroom units that have huge walk-in closets in every bedroom and all the bells and whistles in the world and everything in between, um, <clears throat> the better off we are as a city, right? That's the ideal situation. And so what we've tried to do through the years is do um, as much of that balance as we can. And so, for example, right now, um, a DNS project that actually Sarah Labaschi, Steve's, uh, who I mentioned earlier, Steve's daughter, is leading um, at the old SAC Ballet building at 17th and K. Um, it's called 17th Central. That project, it's all market rate. Um, there's no subsidy for the project. Um, but it's a very moderate size. It's not quite the size of the micro lofts that Nikki Mahana is doing at 19th and J, which is a great, exciting project that we should all be excited is opening soon. But it's um, a moderate size, like mostly 500-ish to 600-ish square feet. And it's really targeting that um, demographic in the middle. Probably doesn't have a car because there's not a whole lot of parking spaces on site. Um, where the rents are going to be a moderate level, but it's not like you're going to overqualify for them if um, you're, you know, if you're um, trying to go after something around that that range because you don't like if you make a little too much or whatever. So it's that middle point, right? With this project, um, Ali, who I mentioned earlier, not not that Ali, who I also mentioned. <laughs> Um, Ali Yusefi was a big believer in um, mixed income and the importance of mixed income. So this project, the entry-level person who just got out of college or whatever who works, say, at Roostaller, all the way up to the manager or the owner of Solomon's Deli could live in this project. We have 137 mixed income units here. 60% um, are set aside for low income. 40% are set aside for market rate. So we have rents as low as like six, seven hundred dollars a month, all the way up to like two to twenty five hundred, right? And one of those people is here also in the hat, Andy. <laughs> um, so it, it's important to do a wide array and uh, um, bring as much balance as we can um, for the city and, and the projects that we do. And so for that project, uh, is it kind of first come first serve in terms of applying for 
the rent because obviously there'll be a lot of people who will be in it. How do you? Is it is it basically you got to get on there, get on it right away, and put an application? That's how it's going to work. Yeah. So for um, for low income units, there's a whole um, regulatory process that you have to make sure you go by. It's first come, first serve. So, for example, on this project, um, our partner CFY, um, from six months in advance of the project getting done, maybe even longer, uh, we started to have a series of workshops at the Wall Project that I mentioned earlier, which was a project they had done a few years before. And it was first come, first serve, interview each resident that wanted a low-income unit, work with them, make sure they gave all the information, understood all the rules, um, and try to find them a home. So I'm going to open it up for, for questions from you all. Um, the mic is right there. And I guess we can have the line move like towards the, the restrooms. And uh, do we already have one question at the mic? And I, I also want to say... For all of you who are standing and, and sitting, thank you guys. Uh, I hope it's interesting enough because I wish we had more chairs. Kind of underestimated the space, but thank you all for, for standing. So yes, so how about the first question at the mic, please? Yeah, so it's kind of a two-parter. One is how are you guys adapting your development cycle for macro trends? So um, like foreseeable downturn um, and also demand from the Bay and a lot of cash flow coming in from external like like significant cash like significant liquidity coming in. And then the other one is like where, what really innovative projects have you seen in other places that you are looking to emulate in Sacramento looking forward? Okay, so the two-parter is, so so yes, yeah, so we don't forget. So the first part is, uh, God, I can't believe I'm spacing. Remember macro trends. Yeah. Macro trends. And yeah, because I have a question about everyone's like, is a recession coming? So preparing for that. And then innovative projects from outside of Sacramento that they want to bring in. Who would like to start? All right, Catherine. I feel like I'm on the hot seat. Um, okay, so I'm just thinking. Innovative projects, I'll start with that one because Bay and I do like to travel all over the country and just kind of, no matter where we go, we end up geeking out on different developments. Um, most recently, we went to Brooklyn and we went with the Metro Chamber on the study mission. I found that to be extremely interesting because it gave you the opportunity to study what other cities are doing in a successful manner and see how we can emulate that in Sacramento. And one thing that they were doing was they were focusing a lot on the artists and the makers. And Brooklyn really fostered that makers environment and had a number of makers studios. And I think being able to create a makers mark in Sacramento would be very special and also really successful because we have a lot of the maker show pop-up shows and farmers market but it doesn't seem like there's it seems like there's a huge community but not necessarily a lot of space for people to go and create and so I know both of us are really passionate about fostering the arts and helping the makers and trying to find a way to do that would be great for Sacramento and the second part of how are we going to plan on this 
mental recession, I call it. I heard that on the news the other day. Is This is a mental recession because people are talking and thinking about a recession when really the economy is in not that bad of a shape. There is, There are some markers, and um, we're not necessarily pivoting our businesses. We're still very bullish on Sacramento and passionate about the city we live in, but um, I think not focusing so much on growth, but focusing more on curating the projects that we do have to make sure that they are really special and right for the city. And um, I know for Rachel and myself, we really want to focus on providing first-time home buyer housing because that's going to be a consistent need no matter what the economic state of our country. Um, people are always going to need housing. So if we can find a way to deliver um, housing at an obtainable price, so the goal would be between two to $300,000, um, we think that that could be successful no matter recession or not. So, And Bay, um, macro trends and innovate projects yeah so um i could talk about that second question like literally for like six hours straight <laughs> um you know there's been a few places we've been to in recent years um one one big one that comes to mind is chicago so for those of you who've been to chicago and you've done like the architectural boat tour that goes through chicago it shows you all the projects the way that they've really activated their riverfront um, their waterfront, and seeing what they've done there and then coming back here to Sacramento and seeing our two sides of the river and the efforts that have already started and what's going on with the bridge district and with I Street and the replacement of the I Street Bridge, the Washington neighborhood. So that's kind of all on the West Sac side. And then on the Sacramento side, um, we mentioned Crocker Park earlier um, and you know Crocker Museum, um, our Tower Bridge, there's a big effort now with um, the waterfront. And we've started going to these meetings and uh, you know, you go to places like Chicago and it just really inspires you and helps you understand that it's our responsibility, I feel like. It may not happen in our lifetime, maybe not in our children's lifetime, but maybe in our children's children's lifetime. It's up to us, I feel like, to really get the waterfront right um, and it's a big thing you see in these other cities that a lot of them have done right. A lot of the world-class cities have been able to successfully pull that off. And what they've done with um, their civic uses, I mean, you look at the Bean in Chicago. For those of you, next time you go to Manhattan, go to Hudson Yards, walk the High Line, and see what they're doing with Hudson Yards and the observatory tower called Vessel that's in the middle of it. It's incredible. And it's just those are the types of things where you come back here, um, you know, we have I-5, for example, running right through our old Sacramento and our waterfront. And if there's a way we could deck over I-5 or reroute I-5, or, you know, those are the types of conversations I feel like we really need to have. We can't just say, oh, that's too expensive. Forget about it. I feel like it's up to us for the generations to come to really try to do those. And those types of trips really make that um, exciting to think about. As far as um, macro, um, I mean, I think a little bit about what we talked about earlier with um, a wide array of housing types and a, um, a, a high variety of different types of projects that you work on. Not only is that a responsibility for us to do for the city because it's good for the city, but it's also smart for us as developers to do that because it 
it's safer, right? If you do only one type of thing and something happens that affects that thing, then you're exposed for, you know, you're more exposed. So the variety, I think, is something that we're um, constantly thinking about, making sure we have in, in our portfolio. Great questions. Thank you. Is anyone up next up? All right, next question, please. Uh, twofold as well, unfortunately. Um, what do you think is the role of mixed use, not just retail, but um, live, work, play neighborhoods um, in the future of the city? Um, and secondly, everyone talks about the Bay Area transition to Sacramento. Um, do you think it's true? Do you think it's false? And not just for retail, but for businesses as well. I'll let Bay answer the mixed use because he's the mixed use king over here. Um, I think, I mean, I think mixed use is the role of the city. It's like the most important role. And it goes back to what I said earlier about the human collisions and the culture that's created and the energy that's created, the activation that's created from mixed use projects coming to fruition. And so, I mean, I've been working on this project for eight and a half years. Every day I get up and I'm excited for that little nudge forward when Bailarine Cellars opens, when Solomon's passes its drywall inspection, when Medici Pizza gets his gas meter yesterday. Because every single one of those things that happens and every single one of those doors that opens, um, it just results in a wider variety of people in this area. And what I feel like that has to our culture as a city um, is a large impact. I mean, to me, that's very impactful. And so I just see mixed use being a really effective catalyst for creating a very authentic and genuine culture in our city. Um, and so for me, it's just all about mixed use. It's all about high density, urban infill, mixed use, ideally with the historic preservation component to it. As far as the Bay Area, um, my wife could probably, and Rachel could speak best for from a housing perspective. From a, you, you asked about business perspective, though, right? Yeah, mixed use for both business and retail, and housing. I'm um, sorry, transition for both business and housing. So, from a housing perspective, I think that we've recently read a lot of articles. The Bay Area is coming. So many Sac San Francisco transplants are coming to Sacramento, but from a at least for, we're in the sale, for sale housing business. So from a for sale perspective, we haven't seen this huge flow of Bay Area buyers. And that could, maybe they're buying high-end custom homes, that could be it. But at least in our price point in our marketplace, we haven't seen this huge flow that you're reading in the papers. And I think a lot of the onus on bringing the Bay Area to Sacramento really should fall on the business owners in the city because it's going to be, it's difficult to have a tech person come to Sacramento and work in the government. So the city has done a good job of trying to bring business, more businesses and more large businesses to Sacramento like Centene or the Amazon Distribution Center or Apple and Elk Grove. All these jurisdictions have done a phenomenal job, but they need to keep pushing because 
I mean, rooftops bring jobs, but we need the jobs for the rooftops to survive. So it's a it's a hefty question, and there isn't necessarily an answer. But I think there is some newspaper hype compared to what we're experiencing, and we really, as everybody in this room, should have more conversations around job creation in Sacramento because that's what's going to keep us around and put us on the map and really have everyone talk about what a wonderful place Sacramento is to live, because it is. Yeah, and if, if I could add to that, I think um, I think everything is a process, right? I think um, the city, and specifically the city's economic development department, for years was really focused on the actual acquisition by the city of um, certain properties that were um, owned by property owners rather than developers who were really just sitting on them. There wasn't much going on. So I think we transitioned as a city out of that era of um, acquisition and trying to put key properties in the hands of developers who would um, activate them, increase property tax, bring businesses, bring housing, etc. We kind of transitioned from that, it, I feel like, to um, what we're going through now, which is a pretty effective last couple years. We have some great leaders in this town, like Councilmember Hansen, Mayor Steinberg. Um, and I say that because they've led a charge where we have, we did deals like the Centene deal, which I think we need more of, and that's, that's huge. But they also now have effectively um, put things in motion that are going to result in the tourism of our city really increasing. If you talk to people from Visit Sacramento about these efforts with the community center renovation, the memorial auditorium improvements, um, and the convention center expansion, um, those are all very critical steps in the growth of our city um, that's going on now. And so I just wanted to touch on that and also that compels more businesses to come here, right? When properties are given to developers who create a fun area, and when community centers and convention centers are expanded to allow for more people to come visit this city, it more easily justifies major companies to um, come and locate here, especially because it's more affordable to live here. And so we're, I feel like we're really going in the right direction, and it's just a process. It's a process of focusing on different um, key aspects. Thank you. Is there anyone behind this gentleman? Okay, next up at the mic, please. Hey, guys. Okay, you have a magic lamp, and you're able to make two wishes, and you can change two things about developing in Sacramento, maybe working with the city, and uh, what would those two things be and why? Catherine, let's start with you. Hot seat. Um, for all jurisdictions, it would be lower fees. The impact fees and the jurisdictional fees over the years keep increasing, but there isn't necessarily a purpose for it. So what maybe a permit cost $10,000 15 years ago now costs forty dollars to $50,000 today, and that just goes directly into the cost of the home. And so for in order for us to provide housing at an affordable price, it's nearly impossible if right out the gate you're spending fifty to $100,000 just on the fees. Uh, secondary would be a um, faster permit process so we could really hit the ground running when we're ready to go. 
is the city working on this since we have a new, relatively new mayor, Steinberg? Have you noticed any changes in either of those or progress the city's working on that? Yeah, the city has done a good job. Sacramento is one of the more progressive cities when it comes to finding leeways for development in order for it to happen in a less expensive or a more expedited process. Um, they recently started a new fee program where if you're building affordable housing, certain fees you do not have to pay or you can pay later, as well as a faster permit. Well, they're working on a faster permit process. Um, whether or not it's going to be in place is yet to be determined. But it's little steps like that that help that prolong the process. Um, that really make it a more onerous process on the developer and a more expensive one as well because it's not necessarily always our money that's out there. So every day is more dollars being spent that goes towards the cost of housing at, at overall. And Bay, your two wishes. Mine would be the exact same. You, you know, um, <laughs> and uh, to tie into that, because I was going to ask you, know, obviously we have a new governor too, and he seems to be really focusing on housing uh, right out of the gate. Um, so I was curious to see, like, based on what you see him doing and proposing, um, what do you like about his efforts for, so far? What are you wary of, I guess, in terms of your role as real estate developers? What do you, what do you think with the new governor in, in, uh, in the capital will change, if anything, about housing and, and making it easier or harder or whatever for, for developing and building housing and retail and mixed use? So, I mean, you know, one of the major challenges we had with this project was that it was the last redevelopment project that um, the city had when re redevelopment agencies still existed. And the governor at the time, Governor Brown, um, was dealing with major issues at a state level and decided to get rid of redevelopment agencies all across California. This project sat dormant for a couple years, and the city actually had to sue the state in order to um, basically argue that this project is an enforceable obligation. It's ready to go. Why are you not allowing for it to proceed? Um, we ultimately were successful, and now Mayor Steinberg at the time, Senate Pro Tem, played a huge role in that happening, and the project um, was off and running, right? But it was one of the last in the city because redevelopment went away. So now seeing Governor Newsom come into play and also seeing that our state budget um, is in a very different place because we've been frugal, right, for however many years. So to see now um, some measured approaches um, to offering money to cities as long as they meet certain obligations, I think is an effective and smart thing to do, especially because we're obviously dealing with a major housing crisis. Um, so I think most... Developers, generally speaking, are upbeat and excited about um, these tools now coming back um, to allow us to hopefully do more and do it more effectively. Catherine? Newsom's definitely having some very necessary conversations where they'll lead. I don't know, but... I commend him for at least having them. SQL review is something that developers head right out the gate is a very difficult process. Yes, I guess for those of you, uh, that's the four letter word or acronym for California Environmental Quality Act that comes up a lot in terms of 
pro or con, depending on how, where you stand in terms of uh, housing and building. Yeah, it comes up a lot, and it definitely can drag out a process for years and years. And so I think just even having that conversation where other political officials might have been scared to even bring it up in the past, I commend him for that. I hope that it goes somewhere, but I, I think he has many challenges ahead of him, but at least the conversations are happening. And the budget, although big, um, it's exciting to see someone who is pro-housing and we're hopeful that he's going to do the right things with it. Next question at the mic. Hi. Um, so I have sort of a hard, maybe a hard question, I don't know. Um, and I don't know the answer to it, but I'm curious how you guys um, think about gentrification. I just, sorry, I, um, I just moved here from the Bay Area, so I may be raising rents. I'm really sorry about that. It's really great to be able to afford an apartment here. Um, and we talk about gentrification a lot. And, um, you know, I come from the, I grew up in the Bay. I'm a middle-class white person, and I would still see new housing coming up in Oakland and think that's not for me. Like I'll never be able to afford an apartment in that building. Um, and so I'm curious how you think about that here. I know it's, you know, I, I love the idea of infill and urban living and mixed use and it's eco-friendly and all of that. Um, but I also wonder, you know, I, I know the, the mill project you talked about before is right near a bunch of, um, subsidized housing and, and uh, public housing. And so what does that mean for that community? Are they reaping the benefits of the new development in that area or is it hurting them? Because it's because once again, they're gonna become the casualty of, of, of development. So do you think about that? Do you think it's your role to think about that? If not, whose role is it? It's a very good question. It was actually on my list. So I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to, to have them address the balance between gentrification and giving your customer what they want. And where does that clash and where does it contrast? And, and who is your customer? Yeah. Really. All right, Catherine, how about you? That's definitely a difficult question and also a timely and important question. Um, gentrification is a very a subject that we're both passionate about. Um, you know, the developer, our job is to provide the framework and the people their job is to provide the community. And without the people, we wouldn't have these thriving, authentic communities like we do in Midtown and downtown and at the mill. And so it's our role to remember that and to remember the people that built these really cool spaces as we go to development, develop the community. And you know, you're never going to be able to avoid gentrification because no matter what you do, if you're creating this cool, authentic, environment people are going to want to come and it's going to become more expensive and so our role is just to keep going and trying to find the new authentic place and to prevent it from becoming overpriced and um, that's probably impossible to do but as we build these new commu communities it's also important to involve the people that were there before we started. And so with the mill, the public housing to the south and east of us, you know, that's owned by the state, so we're not going to push them out. 
I would like to say that they have benefited from our development there because they have new streets, they have eyes on the street, so added security benefits. There, we're going to put in a four-acre public park that is for everybody um, and there will be significant amenities for the entire area and so I think it's important to also recognize the efforts that the developer goes through to provide amenities for everyone not just the community that they're building and serving yeah I mean the only thing I would add to that is back to the whole um, importance of balance topic and theme um, you know, there's projects that I've been a part of that have the highest rents in the city. They're the largest units, and they rent for the highest amount on a per square foot basis. And the reason they do is because they're large units. They have great views. They have all the bells and whistles. There wasn't a, a shortcut made. They have all high-end appliances. They give people everything they want, right? You want three cars with your place? No problem, right? That's our project at 15th and Q. But at the same time, we're, like I said, building places like this where almost all of the rents here are less than a thousand bucks. A lot of them are seven, eight, nine hundred dollars a month. So I think, you know, everything, it's important to be balanced. But, you know, there's extremes too. Like I remember the other couple weeks ago, I was reading an article. There was a, a vegan kombucha place that's opening in Oak Park. And I was reading the comments, and it was really controversial. There was a lot of upset people saying that no one from the community is going to go there. They're not going to hire anyone from the community. And to myself, I was thinking, this is a vegan kombucha place, so they're focused on nutrition. I mean, what else is better for the community? And usually those types of communities have McDonald's and fast food places in them for a business like this to come there instead and to try to start educating people on the right way to live your life in order to have a better quality life. So everything's a fine line and it's not so, to me it's not so black and white. And we just, we, we do though to answer your question as developers have to be mindful and it is our responsibility to go out and build um, a balanced um, stock of housing. The other thing I'll add though is that the most effective way to create money for a city is from projects that produce permit fees and higher property tax eventually are sold to some investor or REIT group at a higher property tax than that that the city then gets a portion of that they could then go and spend on more projects. So it's kind of you know a chicken before the egg or a catch-22 or whatever you want to call it. It's, it's a balancing act. Oops, thank you. Any other questions at the mic? Last call for questions at the mic. Hello. Uh, if you had $500,000 or $500 million and only invested in Sacramento, what would you do? Wait, so if you only if had... If you had either 500... Wait, no, no, no. Two questions. $500,000 and $500 million, what would you do? With each back? amount? Yes. Okay, so half a million... Or 500, or 500 or so half a, half a billion, 500 million, and 500. I've been drinking, yeah, 500 yeah, million. I know, I yeah. have. So two, two separate uh, <laughs> dinner at Ella, uh, or two separate projects for 500 million and 5 billion? 500,000 and 500 million. So there's the high-low. Okay, so I'll take the high. You could take the low. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so if, if I had $500 million, um, most 
development projects, you have to put in somewhere around 25 to 30% of the cost, and you could get a loan for the rest. So if I had $500 million, that actually means I could use that as 25% of a much, much larger amount to go do even more development, right? Um, so I would use that to go do an even greater amount, and it makes it even easier for me to accomplish that goal of doing as wide an array of different projects as I can, because I have so much money, apparently, if I have $500 million. And I also would make sure that a healthy percentage of that $500 million was specifically going to um, very civic-minded, let's do a bean like Chicago has, let's do a vessel like Manhattan's about to have, you know, fill-in-the-blank type of um, things <laughs> for our city. So that, that would be what I would do with that. I thought you were going to say you were going to deck I-5. <laughs> that would be part of it. Yeah, that's, actually, that's a great point. I would, that would be a major part of that money. Yeah, that goes into the civic. <laughs> yeah, that's why it's good to have a smart wife. <laughs> how, how, much would, how much would 500 million cover of I-5 or deck it? Would it be a significant amount or a drop? I have no idea. I I I haven't even I don't I know like, where to even begin. <laughs> I know it's been studied before, but I don't know what the latest figures are. Catherine, I guess five hundred thousand for you. Well, I will not be decking I five or improving the riverfront, but I think with five hundred thousand dollars, find a way to find um, an old underserved building such as the old Marshall School. And Which is where? I know Midtown. It's uh, it's twenty seven. Yes, yes. It's an old school. It um, has not been used for quite some time. Sat vacant, and the schools like that, buildings like that, where nothing is happening. I feel like it is our duty as a developer to do something with that. So, with five hundred thousand dollars, we would find a way to do something with that school. Are, do they have any projects underway or they want to do something? It's just, uh, um, does anyone know? Because I keep hearing about the Marshall School, but then I don't know exactly where it is in terms of scheduling or breaking ground. Funny you say that. <laughs> so Bardas Homes, in connection with Mogabero Architects, we are trying right now to find a way to take the Marshall School from the school district and develop it, develop it into a type of either apartment building or a community living space um, that I think would be really great for the neighbors, the neighborhood, and the community overall. It's just been a challenging process. We've been working on it for two years, trying to find a way to uh, get it under our belt. Great question. So we have one last question at the mic, and then we got to move on. So I see someone hovering there. Let's see what she's got. I'm sure it's a good question. So I'm a service industry worker, and like I feel that the service industry is what brings the majority of people into Sacramento. Um, it used to be very affordable to live here. Within the last few years, it's become almost impossible as a service in industry worker to live here. I personally don't live here anymore. Um, Where do you my, live? Where I do live you in Rosa with my parents. I'm 31 years old. It is not cool. Right? Like, rent has gone up, like, 300% in the last, like, I don't know, six years or something. It's crazy. And I just think, like, do you as developers understand that there's something to be said for 
having like your waiter and your bartender, your service staff, know like what the cool places are in town, understand the culture of the city. We have to be like actually offering these people affordable places to live and good like service to live here because you're bringing in people to the city and you're offering them an experience that cannot be offered to them by people who do not live here and have not lived here ever. I really appreciate the fact that you're like trying to offer affordable living, but I think for service industry workers, like it's, it's that much harder to qualify for places because a lot of our income is tips. And we also are not really that respected in general. So it makes it that much more difficult to like really secure like a nice place to live. We should be able to do that. It is almost impossible right now. So I'm kind of wondering like, do you value the contributions of people who are working in the service industry who are bringing people in and treating them to that experience that they're wanting in the city? And like, what are you doing to make sure that they can afford to live here? That's a good question, I, and I want to say I've been reading so much about San Francisco and how they're dealing with this big time because uh, well, I went they, to college in Ashland, Oregon, where yeah. uh, a few years ago, ninety percent of people who were working in the service industry were working, were living in town, and now it's less than twenty yeah. percent. Five years later, in San Francisco, and I think they just yeah, changed you can't afford it too. So there's a big, it's a big deal in San Francisco. I'm sure it's it's start, starting, if not already, heightening up to big big deal so yeah your role i guess because uh, we you know gentrification and affordable housing and but you just, know do you want people to actually know the city to welcome people into your city to show them a nice time or do you want it to be people from you know it's like when you get a lift from someone in midtown but yeah. they're from elk grove and they don't know where <laughs> h street is you know what i mean so <laughs> like, developers aren't heartless robots you know for the most part I mean, you like, have to convince. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, so I think the the biggest challenge, a lot of it we touched on today, like programs have been cut, redevelopment had been taken away, tools that were in the tool chest before were taken out of the tool chest. I just chest. don't think the conversation for service industry workers is really like where it should be, personally. Okay. Um, so... One of the easiest ways to provide a solution to that answer is to be able to provide more housing, more inventory. Like when you drive around from Roseville into town, how many crown, uh, cranes do you see in the sky in Sacramento? I right mean, now, I'm just like bothered by not getting into a car accident. So I'm not looking. <laughs> so my, my point is, right now, there's there's two housing-related cranes in the sky. There's one at 15th and Q, and there's one at 19th and J. And that's like crazy. Like we never even. That's like a record. I don't remember in the last 15 no, years. No, no, I never saw seeing one. Seeing like more than one crane, right? You go to other cities and you're seeing a lot more, even though they're still dealing with the same problem. You're seeing a lot more. It's just it's really really hard to make these projects come together. Like, I've been getting up, like I said, with my partners for eight and a half years to try to make this project come together. What we had to do from a financing point of view, putting in our own money, guaranteeing loans, getting money from the city. I do. Can I say, like, I respect that. Yeah. But I just think that there's not enough emphasis on service industry workers. Like, we're literally the reason why people are driving from wherever they live to come and have the experience in our city that we are providing for them. It's yeah. not just like normal, like low income shit. They're literally coming to us 
to experience like what I can tell you about beer, what I can tell you about the steak that we're serving right now. We're providing that experience that people from out of town are expecting and they're wanting and we are not being given affordable housing or any kind of anything. We don't get health benefits. We don't get PTO. We don't get any of that shit. But that's literally why people are coming into our city is to spend time with us and enjoy our products and our service. And I think that's a, a real issue. And I'm sorry, I'm not saying that's like d- a developer's issue to like deal with. No, no. It's what like I'm, obvious so, societal issue. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. But what I'm trying to convey to you is that I don't think the reason you're experiencing what you're experiencing is because there's this um, resentful attitude towards people in the service industry. I think the bigger reason why you're experiencing what you're experiencing is because there's not enough people trying to do what we're doing. And on top of that, it's extremely difficult to do what we're doing. And it takes a long time, right? Like even if I started today on a 100 unit project just for servers and bartenders, it wouldn't be done today. Like everything was in play. It wouldn't be done for like like three years. Four years years ago, I had like, what? Well, no, I just I want to wrap it up because I, I did want to add something to this. No, that's okay. Because, no, what you bring up is a very valid point, And we are doing um, another series of events called Food for Thought, which we're going to be taking a look at the service industry. So, yeah, it's a complicated topic because there's affordability and gentrification, right? We didn't bring up homelessness in, in your role. It's a multifaceted thing. So it is something that we're going to be talking about. So I don't I don't mean to cut you off. Where did you go, by the way? Okay, yeah. So no, I it's a I I I want Catherine to to weigh in on that too, really briefly, and then we we do have to wrap wrap it up for podcast time at least. But yeah, I mean, obviously, people look at you as like, what are you bringing in uh, to the city? What are you taking out for whatever reason? So you kind of for whatever reason you're in the crossfire. But in terms of what she's addressing, what Sacramento is known for. What can you what can you add or what do you have to deal with as in your role as a developer? Yeah, I think the conversation is around affordability. I mean, no one is targeting anyone from the service industry. I think a lot of individuals from the service industry do get caught in the crossfire because you don't have PTO and you are getting so many tips that, you know, from a down payment standpoint on a house is hard to justify, but I think the bigger question is, is what can the city do, what can the state do, and what can us as developers do to provide more affordable market rate housing? And those are the real conversations that we need to have for the future. They're not the conversations, unfortunately, for right now. I think there are some great projects underway to where in the next year to 18 months you're going to see the fruits of their labor. Um, But, you know, we're in a tough situation and it is because of some decisions that were made in the past where developers don't have all the tools in their toolbox to provide for that sense of affordability that we're clearly lacking for all types of people and it is something that we're all aware of and their conversations that we're having they're necessary conversations and we definitely feel for everyone is just trying to find a means to that method 
so yes, obviously there's a, it's a multifaceted topic, and we've had a lot of discussions on this, and we probably will, and they're always well attended. So um, for the podcast, we're going to wrap it up at least because we have a few more things we're going to do, um, not on tape. But I wanted to say thank you very much, Catherine and Bay, for coming to talk to us about this um, and what you're doing for Sacramento. Thank you guys. Thank you so much. You've been listening to California Groundbreakers. Tonight's Groundbreakers Q&A conversation was held on February 6th at Roostaller in Sacramento. A special thanks to J.E. Pano and Zoe Pineda of Roostaller, and to volunteers Rodrigo Ramirez and Nicole Grant-Krieg for helping us put on this event together. And of course, thanks to you for listening. Find out when our next event is by going to our website, californiagroundbreakers.org.